Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. So I have an ask for you today. If you're enjoying this podcast, what I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to leave us a five-star review, even better. If not, tell us why. We are really doing our best to make this show the absolute best it can be to help as many people to go offshore and inspire entrepreneurs and investors and business owners to move their businesses abroad. There's so much to be had in this industry. I love doing this work and I love doing this podcast, but we want to get the message out there to more people. And the best way to do that is with reviews. So if you have ever gotten one good tip, one good thing from this show, if you enjoy listening to us every single Wednesday or whenever you listen during the week, then please take 30 seconds out of your day, go out there, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a big difference for the show, for the visibility, and really helps get the word out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support and enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is dedicated to the relentless pursuit of freedom. He is the CEO of Crash, the career launch platform, and the founder of Praxis, a startup apprenticeship program, both of which are shaking up how young people pursue their dreams and develop the necessary skills. As we know, the face of education is finally changing in a good way. And today, we're going to delve into what the future holds for those looking for alternative ways for people to learn, to enter the workforce, and to educate their children. Please welcome to the show, Isaac Morehouse. Isaac, how are you doing? Doing great, Mikkel. It's great to be on the show. My pleasure to have you here. Isaac, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you end up starting Praxis and Crash and these types of education platforms? I'm super interested. Yeah, I was always motivated by from a very, I don't know how, how young, but from a pretty young age, at least in my teens and on, kind of by the pursuit of freedom, as you mentioned in the bio. And so naturally I thought, oh, well, the way to expand freedom is to go into politics. I went into politics. I realized that wasn't it. Then I went into kind of policy and educational advocacy and activism. And I realized that wasn't it. And finally, all these frustrations I had with, you know, governments and encroaching on people's lives and people basically living a 
tracked life where they feel like they just have to follow rules and, you know, hope for the best, put their head down, do what they're told. Um, my frustration with that, I realized arguing about it was not going to do it. And that creating alternatives to the status quo through entrepreneurship was a far better way. And I was particularly interested in higher education because um, I had worked in and around there with several nonprofits. And I just had this, uh, truly, this sounds dramatic, but I was walking on the beach and I had this light bulb moment where the idea for Praxis, my first company, which is a college alternative, came to me. And I just knew I've got to try this. I have to, I, I needed an answer. I thought, I think this can work. I think this can be huge. And I need to know if my hunch is right. And um, I'm willing to take a risk and I'm willing to fail if I'm wrong to do this. And so I quit a very good job and started that company in 2013 and um, have been an entrepreneur ever since and started my second company about a year ago. And uh, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the genesis. It, it was sort of a, a long culmination of realizing that the freedom I'm so passionate about is best advanced through entrepreneurship and realizing my own personal preferences that like, I like autonomy and every job I worked, I just wanted more of it. And so <laughs> once I, I have a, th a phrase in my life, don't do stuff you hate. And as I kept whittling away things that I hated, oh, okay, I guess I don't like this. The only thing that was left for me was entrepreneurship. <laughs> well, I understand that completely. I'm a lifelong entrepreneur myself, but talk to us, I guess, about why why wasn't it okay for you just to go out there and kind of fix the problem? Like you said, you worked in policy and you worked <laughs> in um, in politics or studied these types of things. Why weren't you able just to fix the problems that were already there? Why did you have to start from scratch? Yeah, I think the incentive structure is all wrong in governments in terms of so, so I got I got pretty deep studying um, public choice theory, which is kind of a, a subset of economics that that explores the um, the way that people behave in the political marketplace, so to speak. So uh, the rational choice, you know, the, the reason that people are self-interested at the grocery store, um, it doesn't suddenly vanish when they go to the voting booth. And so public choice theories is a very fascinating field of study. And I started, I discovered this and I started diving into it. Right around the time I was working in uh, at the state level, the state legislature, and like seeing how messed up it was from the inside, and then I like moved out of that into the kind of policy advocacy think tank world. Um, and again, each step, I just realized that when you have a system where the incentives are structured so that, you know, all the costs are dispersed upon all the citizens and all the benefits are concentrated on small interest groups, it's never going to be worth any enough people's time. You know, let's just take a crazy like sugar subsidies, for example, like Americans pay, you know, many multiples more for sugar than they need to because of tariffs and subsidies to support sugar, you know, sugar farmers in the US. It costs the average consumer a couple bucks, maybe a hundred bucks a year in extra cost, maybe a few hundred at most. So no, it's not going to be worth anyone's time to like go spend their life trying to get rid of the sugar lobby, the sugar subsidies. Cause it's like, okay, it's a couple bucks. My time's worth more than that. But those farmers, it's worth many hundreds of millions to them. And so they're going to spend damn near as much time as they can trying to lobby for that. And so that incentive structure is present in every part of government, higher education, et cetera. And so I realized trying to change the system from within, uh, you'll, you won't change it. It will corrupt you <laughs> or else you'll burn out and go crazy. But where I saw hope was innovating around the status quo. 
And I'll never forget when, when Uber first came out. I mean, how many white papers had libertarian think tanks written about the inefficiency of taxicab monopolies and, and the cartel giving these medallions? How many times have people made the case that this is, you know, harmful to poor people who are trying to start their own companies? This is this giant racket. It's not a good thing for business economically, blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. Nobody listens. But Uber just innovates around it. Hey, we got an app on our phone and you'll get you, a, you know, it's a better service. And nobody cares. You don't have to win any ideological arguments. People are like, oh, Uber, that's convenient. I like it. And it spreads faster than regulators can catch up. And then by the time they try to ban it, it's like, it's too late. You know, in some of the cities, the Uber was just paying the fines and, you know, consumers are like, wait, why are you the, what, you know, what kind of politician is going to take away my Uber service? And so I had that realization that, Instead of just telling people that the status quo is bad and it needs to change, just provide them the alternative. Give them a vision of what something better would look like. Because it's really scary to say, you know, higher education is really messed up. We should change it. We should nuke the whole thing. Well, people are like, okay, I'm, a, I'm okay with you saying it's messed up, but like, I don't know what, what we would have in place of it. That's scary to me. And so instead, if you can say, here's an alternative, come do this instead of college. You'll see how it works. You'll see how it benefits you. People do it and suddenly they're convinced without ever having to get into an ideological argument. Well, that makes a lot of sense. But then I guess we should probably jump into what are some of the problems with the government-run uh, schools um, for the student side opposed to just from the tax side or from the government side? Yeah, I mean – the biggest problem, I mean, there are so, the problems are so many. So from a fundamental standpoint, and you can trace this back if you look at the history of, of schooling, um, you know, in this country, the biggest problem is the, is the purpose. The whole purpose is to create obedient, compliant, rule-following people. And that's like antithetical to what makes humans really come alive. You know, humans are creative problem solvers. We want, we crave freedom. And we're, we're inventive and we're entrepreneurial. I mean, you can see this in small children. They're, they experiment. They try and fail. They, they, you know, they, they're curious relentlessly. They're relentless learners. And you actually have to essentially beat that out of them, which is exactly what the school system does. The reason is implemented is not to expand learning, but to reduce it to a smaller set of approved ideas so that there's not all these different people learning all these different things. Um, and, and you can go, I mean, I'm not, I'm not making this up. Like that's actually in the history of, <laughs> of schooling. Um, and so I think that fundamental, you know, premise is wrong, but the, the way that the system works is like, it's essentially, you learn the most from what you're around, from what you observe. So, th so this is the reason, for example, why uh, the children of, let's say, athletes and entertainers they so often become athletes and entertainers. Now, maybe part of it's genetics and part of it's network that they have, but a lot of it is because they grew up viewing that as a very normal thing within their option set. Whereas if you grew up like I did in the Midwest and you didn't know anybody who is a celebrity or a professional athlete, you just kind of assume that that's like too far for you and that's not a possibility. Or if you never met a business owner, you never think of being a business owner. So what you're around, you learn. And when you think of the school system, like K through 12, all the way through college, it's basically a 16-year apprenticeship to be an academic because everything you do, the reward system, the incentive structure, everything that you do to win in that environment are things that are only valued in that environment. They're only valued in the academic structure. Think about writing assignments in school. Here you go. 
I'm going to tell you the topic, whether you're interested or not. I'm going to give you all the criteria, how many pages, how many citations, all this kind of stuff. You're going to write it. And it's all about page length and meeting these arbitrary criteria. And then I am paid as a teacher to actually read it and pay attention to it and give you feedback on it. There is nothing in the real world that's like that. You want to write in the real world? It's like, what can you do that captures the attention of audiences? Nobody's paid to read your stuff. Nobody's going to give you feedback. You don't have arbitrary, you know, page limits and whatever. I mean, you can see when people come out of school and they start writing, you know, you try to hire a, try to hire a marketing copywriter straight out of college. Um, they're going to write, their writing will be so schooled. You're going to have to unschool or de-school them before they can <laughs> learn what's valued in the market. And so the whole process, it's like so separated from the real world. Everything there is about doing what authorities tell you. I mean, you, for God's sake, you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom, right? You wait till a literal bell rings to tell you when you're allowed to stop working on one type of project and work on another. And so it creates this kind of, um, you know, this kind of human that comes out needing rigid structure and control and rules for everything and kind of like, hey, I followed the rules. Now, where's my reward? And in the market, that's not how it works. In the market, you got to learn how to create value for people and get creative. So, I think that the, the, the whole structure and then obviously all the incentives, it's, you know, it's, it's protected from accountability to the market. Um, I'll, 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 I'll stop blabbing here with this with one example. <laughs> no, it's perfect because, and, and it is quite funny because, I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm listening to you speak and I'm even thinking about my own life. I'm a high school dropout, um, dyslexic, got sent to a special school because he couldn't read, write, and spell until he was much older. And then, you know, left school and then grew up and decided to be a published author and write a blog that I get, I don't know what, two or 3 million people a year who read my blog. And it's like, because I'm not writing academic stuff. I'm writing stuff that people want to read. And if people didn't want to read it, then they wouldn't search it out and they wouldn't spend time on the site and they wouldn't subscribe to the newsletter. But, you know, I think that writing and creating things are inherent in us and that exactly as you said, it has to get beaten out of us. That creativity and and the way to look at things where it's systematically removed that creativity. It's market feedback, that real world feedback, like bumping into the world and realizing what's working and what's not. Uh, you know, that, and that's where from a, from an instructional standpoint, there's no feedback or accountability for teachers or professors. And so it's no wonder they're not really teaching stuff that's valued by the market, let alone by their students. I remember when I was in college, I thought this is so weird. I'm paying all this money. I'm the customer here. But I never felt like I was treated like a customer. I felt like I was treated like an annoyance. Professors were like, they didn't care if I didn't like their classes or if their classes were boring or if they were grumpy and, and irrelevant. They didn't care at all. And it's just similar how you feel in, in a healthcare system like the US, which is partially socialized or you know, I'm sure in, in Canada and other places. When you're not the customer, the providers don't really care that much if you're happy. And so you don't get very good service because there's, they're getting their money from a third party. And in most cases with college, it's coming from grants and federally subsidized loans. And they know that you're, you're not the one paying directly. And it doesn't really harm them if you're unhappy there because they kind of have this monopoly. And so that lack of accountability in the teaching profession, you know, is one of the reasons. And then it, it, it carries further. The whole system is it's keeping the student out of the marketplace and they're not getting that real world feedback. I, I think about like, how do you learn 
just anything, like learning to play basketball. You don't go and like study basketball and read basketball books for years and years. You go out and you pick up a ball and you start playing. And then maybe after you've gotten some reps under your belt, you might go like try to, you know, learn a little bit of detail and do a little theorizing. But, you know, I, I often say if we, if we taught bike riding the way that we prepare people for careers, you would spend 20 years in a classroom you would learn about the ecosystems where rubber is grown for the bike, you know, tires. You learn to label and draw and identify every bark, bike part. Uh, and you'd be taught all about the history of bikes from people who hate them and have never ridden them before. And you would not be allowed to ride them or even touch them in most cases until the end of that 20 years. And then you'd be dropped off in the middle of the highway and it'd be like, congratulations, now go ride, <laughs> go ride your bike, you know? <laughs> you're, a college, you're a college graduate. But I know, and especially from the business side, which we are going to touch on in a minute, but I mean, I think it's absolutely hilarious that business is taught in schools by people who have never started a business, who are, you know, are not entrepreneurs. They're never using their own money, they've, but they've, they've read about it. You know, and you're like, well, like, and I'm not saying I don't love reading. Like, I'm a voracious reader. I love reading, but I like reading books from people who have, you know, done stuff. Like, that's like, for me, like, that's kind of that really important factor. You know, like a lot of the textbooks, they're not written by someone who actually did these things. If I'm going to read an autobiography or if I'm going to read a business book or a marketing book and it's like, well, this is what I did and this is how I A-B tested it and this is what happened afterwards and then I tweaked this and that happened. You know, it's like you can see that process and you can kind of put those, those join those dots together. But I mean, in the academics, it's just, it's not real world. It's funny, um, you know, with, with Praxis, we had all these students come in and, and start the program. And we found um, those who were really good in school, who got like good grades and focused on getting good grades. And most people do Praxis instead of college, but some people did it after college, especially if they had done it after college. We had to spend like a couple months doing what we would call the de-schooling process because they, they would come in and they'd be like, okay, what, how do I, how do I win? Like, what do I do to get, to get the grade or get the approval? And we're like, that's not how it works. We start by asking you, what are your goals? What do you want at the end of this program? Are you looking for a job? What type of job? What are you, what are you hoping to accomplish? Do you have any particular goals or outcomes? And they're like, well, I don't know. I like, I just want to like succeed by the program standards. And we're like, our standards are for you to succeed by uh, of your, your own goals. Right. And there's this weird thing, like, tell me what to do. Tell me what the assignment is. Um, and I think breaking out of that and just understanding, and, and what's funny is when you're, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this with yourself. I'm sure you've seen it with, with kids as well. When you're motivated to learn something, you can learn it so fast. Like think about how many, I mean, I know you just skipped out on school, so you may not have this experience, but how many semesters of like Spanish you could take uh, because you had to fulfill a language requirement and, and come away not knowing anything about Spanish versus spending like one month in a Spanish speaking country where you need to learn a little bit to get around. It's incredible, right? That need and that desire. It's so important. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And for your example for Spanish and kind of tying back a, a couple of minutes ago, when you're talking about who the client is and how people are rewarded, you know, like I study Spanish and I have a private tutor 
And you better believe that they treat me like I am the client. I'm the one who's paying. So, I mean, they're super nice to me. You know, they're really patient with me. They try to help me. If I have questions, they ask them. It's not like I'm bothering them or bugging them. But I do remember back, God, 30 years ago or something when I was in school and you were kind of expected in school, or I felt like I was expected already to know the answer. And then if I didn't know the answer and I put up my hand or asked a question, it was like I was made to feel stupid. Like I, that's how I felt afterwards. Like, so I was actually conditioned if I didn't know something, then to not speak up and just pretend like everything was fine and everything was going according to plan and just nod my head that I knew what was going on. And it was like, it was just the worst. No, and and when you think about like the people who, uh, especially especially if you want to be an entrepreneur, who tend to be really successful, they're relentlessly curious. And in the in the school setting, curiosity is punished, right? So the other students will poke fun at you if you're always asking other questions and whatever. The teachers will be like, you're supposed to know the answer. You're not supposed to have more questions. You're supposed to have more answers. I just tell you what to learn. You memorize it. And so you kind of associate curiosity, wanting to know more with like being a nerd or being a bother. When you think about in the, in the world, who's the most successful? And I, and I always am trying to like stimulate young people's curiosity, like asking them questions when they, they want to go, you know, get a job at a company. And this is one of the things we help with Crash. Instead of just, here's my resume, hire me. It's like, think about the company. What do they do? Who's their customer? What's their customer's pain point? How much revenue do they make per customer? I mean, even I tell my kids, we go to a coffee shop. I'm like, when I go into a coffee shop, the first thing I always think is I start looking at how many employees are working there. I estimate how much they must be getting paid per hour. I try to estimate how much they're paying for rent. I look at the number of customers in there and I look at their orders and I estimate what's the average order size. And I try to figure out, can this place be in business? And I can usually predict pretty quickly the ones that are going to go out of business. And they do, you know, like you can just asking these questions or when you drive in a neighborhood, like, okay, how, what kind of job does this person have to afford that house and that car? Like being curious about the world around you and trying to put the pieces together. That's how you spot opportunity. That's how you learn things and see where you can create value. And it's like the whole world opens up. It makes you more optimistic. It makes you more excited versus feeling like a victim that's like, well, I'm just shooting out resumes and no one will hire me. I guess it's the economy and I'm just kind of helpless here. Um, it's So that that curiosity is so, so crucial. And that's one of the things that is really crushed. I mean, I remember in, in college, just looking around and seeing, seeing all these kids with their heads on their desk, mumbling, hungover. Nobody wanted to be there. Everybody cheers when class is canceled, right? Think about any other good that you pay for upfront and then you're happy when it's not delivered. Right. Like it's, it's a, it's a weird thing. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to learn the stuff. They're just buying the piece of paper because they think they have to. And I just remember thinking, man, this is, this is such a weird thing. All I'm really buying is a piece of paper that signals to the world that I'm probably no worse than these other people in this class. And I'm like, man, that's a pretty weak signal. <laughs> like these are some pretty uninspired, uninterested people. And I, I guess they're going to end up in the world somewhere when, when they go out and get a job. But um, so I just, I've always had at a fundamental level, like I worked a lot from a young age and I learned so much from my jobs, from my even household chores more than any, you know, schoolwork. And, um, and I think just getting that, that real world feedback is crucial. So what about private schools, charter schools, all these types of things? Do they fix these types of problems or what's your opinion on them? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think they're getting better and there's more opportunity and more um, genuine competition is popping up. But traditionally, when you think of private school or charter school, I don't think they they go very far because they've pretty much um, emulated the public school structure. And especially in the case of charter schools and things, they kind of have to, they're pretty constrained because they're still getting um, you know state funding and, and things like that. Now, they're, they're better in terms of if you accept the goals of school as we know it, which is, you know, get good grades, get into a good college, then a, a for-profit version that's trying to do that is going to be better at doing that, right? Because they have to or they'll go out of business. So they're better at achieving those outcomes, but very few are fundamentally questioning this conflation of schooling with learning. And you do have some like Montessori schools, Waldorf schools, Sudbury Valley schools, democratic schools. There's more and more popping up and these kind of hybrids of like homeschool co-ops or homeschool classes and unschooling. Um, But the sort of traditional private and charter schools, I would say they offer a little bit of reprieve from some of the worst public school environments. And they put a little pressure on public schools to like maybe not be as physically abusive or horrible because you have at least some, some potential options to go to other places. Um, but they, they haven't been very radical, very fundamentally questioning of this very, very modern idea that schooling is the way that you learn things. So kind of like state run schools, but with better computers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. okay. So then let's talk about the history a little bit, because I think that this is something that a, peop- a lot of people don't understand. You know, really, really smart individuals that I've had conversations with kind of just accept that schools have always been there and they have always been this way. Do you have any insights onto the history of schooling uh, on modern education? Because I think it's super telling. <laughs> no, it is. And it is. Schools as we know them are like a historical anomaly in human history, um, especially the kind of K through 12 setup. I mean, that's a very new thing. Like we're talking like 150, I think the Prussian school system was kind of the first and that's what the United States really modeled themselves after. And if you, the, the history of the Prussian school system, why they implemented this mass compulsory public schooling was, and I'm not making this up, when they would go to war uh, and they would, you know, get people to, to come and suit up and come fight on behalf of the government, the soldiers didn't want to fight. They would not follow orders and they would go home. They'd be like, I'm not going to fight in your war. This has nothing to do with me. And so the government realized, man, this isn't working. Uh, we need to start when they're kids, get them in a system that basically indoctrinates them to be patriotic and obedient and to learn the things that we think are valuable and to have respect and deference for state authority so that by the time they're older and they're soldiers, they'll just obey without thinking. And that was the, that was the actual goal. I, knew, I think it was very effective. And that's what the U.S. system was, was modeled after. Um, so it is a very new thing. I mean, when, when public schools started to come into the United States, there were a lot of uh, private schools and a lot of tutors and a lot of kids that just were homeschooled or just didn't go to school. Or they went to school for maybe a couple of years and then they would go back and work on the farm. And there's this myth that everybody was like ignorant and illiterate. The literacy rates were like, like almost complete, like 95%, something like that. Once, once being literate became a valuable market skill, everybody became literate. Like when, when it wasn't, when you're, you know, on the farm and it's not that valuable, except maybe to read the Bible or something like that, maybe, you know, some people weren't, but by the time public schools came in, literacy was already 
almost universal. Like it was not like, oh, nobody knew how to read until we forced them into schools. It's a, a total misnomer. And in fact, part of the reason for the public schools was they wanted to reduce the amount the supply of education, because there was too much variety. You had these private schools teaching some religious things that they thought were threatening to, uh, you know, the state. Um, you had these people over here learning this. You had these different immigrant groups learning in different ways and different cultures, and they wanted to just create one uniform citizenry by basically restricting what could be taught. And so, I mean, you look at, you know, you go way back in human history, and, you've, and there's still many cultures like this kids learn things by being around them. And so you have kids that are like around the village. They see, you know, their dad's a blacksmith and they're around his blacksmithing business and they're around the, the shipbuilders or whatever it might be. They're in and around the real world of adults and kids love to watch and emulate adults. And you see them from a very young age. They'll watch what, you know, They'll watch, like my kids would watch my wife prepare dinner and do groceries and they would make up their grocery lists and they would, you know, pretend that they were grocery shopping and making, like they think it's cool to do grown up stuff. But we've created a system where we immediately, and it's as early as possible, like age five, pull them out of the real world, the world that they're going to supposed to live in and thrive in later and put them in literal cinder block cells, often with barbed wire around them in like flickering fluorescent lights. Usually they tear the doors right off the bathroom stalls. So you don't even have like privacy to go to the bathroom. You eat lunch. It's like a prison setting. You're in there and every 50 minutes a bell rings and you go to some other class and you learn some random subject that you'll probably never use again, completely sheltered from the real world of commerce, of what's happening. Like kids, be the ability to wander into the you know, into a, the, the back of the shop and see what things are like and what are people doing in here and be around those things. Like that is so valuable and they're completely sheltered from it. And in fact, many times they're, they're all the way through college and then they'll go to college and they'll be like, everybody tells me I should go be a lawyer. So then they'll go to, you know, three years of law school and they'll come out at age 25 with $250,000 in debt and go and practice law for the first time. And they'll realize six months in that they hate practicing law but they can't afford to take any other job because they have to pay back their debt. And the idea that you would be completely unexposed to the actual practice for all that time while you're like studying. And then for the first time you enter the world, like that's crazy. That's antithetical to the way humans have learned all throughout history. And it's a very strange anomaly. No, I agree with that hundred percent. And to go back to your point about literacy and our history, they see, people seem to think that humans were just savages more than like 100 years ago. But I mean, I challenge you to go and find a copy of Common Sense, like Thomas Paine. And that's like from what, like 1775 or something like that? And they, they sold like 2.5 million copies of it, uh, of this pamphlet, and read it. I mean, like you had to be pretty literate to be able to read something like that. And then look at the population of the United States at that time and understand, you know, how, what type of a level that people were at in their reading and comprehension skills to be able to understand a document like that. And then I don't have the uh, statistics in front of me now, but I'm pretty sure that the literacy rates in North America at the moment are pr probably pretty atrocious because the way that they teach is just, it's so backwards and it, it's just, it fundamentally doesn't work a lot of this rote learning. I remember a friend of mine was, um, he actually ended up dropping out of the program because he didn't want to go into academia, but he was working on, he was thinking about getting a PhD in philosophy to be an academic. And so he was a teacher's assistant and he was grading uh, undergraduate academic papers. And he would bring them over to my house to, and we would just divide them up and we were supposed to grade these essays. And he's like, 
you're not allowed to grade on grammar or spelling, just grade on whether they got the philosophical arguments correct. And he's like, because otherwise literally nobody would pass the class. I mean, it was, it was atrocious. And I'm thinking like, these are people that are in college. They were like juniors and seniors about to graduate with a philosophy degree and they couldn't, so, you know, some of them weren't philosophy degrees, but they couldn't, they couldn't string a sentence together. So, um, yeah, it is amazing. I, I remember when I first read, um, I, I think it's Adam, maybe even the, the wealth of nations, but I know, uh, David Hume, um, I think an inquiry concerning the principle of morals that was written for 15 and 16 year olds in Scotland at the time. And like today, uh, hardly any adults can read it. You could say some of that is language and colloquialisms, but most of it is like, it's just high level stuff, you know? So it's a hard argument to make that, well, public schools are making kids so smart, they'd be dumb without it because uh, it's, it's pretty easy to see. And you can see this with all the homeschoolers you've met, even the unschoolers and stuff. There's no problem. Uh, there's no intelligence problem with kids who don't go to school. And the ones who do go to school, if you're looking at the average public school student as your paragon of intelligence, um, we're in trouble. Well, I think that's super important because if you look at the, and, and we're talking specifically about public school and high school, but I mean, if you look at it and you have 30, 32 children in a classroom and you have one teacher. So the, the children are literally learning from one another. They're learning all their behaviors and how to interact, everything from one another. The problem is that none of them know how to behave. They don't know how to fit in with society. They don't know how to make friends. They don't know what's expected of them. They don't know how to provide value, how to be emotional. And they don't understand these things because we're all stuck in one age group. You know, I think that there's so much to be said for staggering the age groups. Like if I look at my daughter as an example, she's four years old. Her very best friend in the whole wide world is seven years old. And these two love each other. Every time they see each other, they're holding hands, they're walking around together, they're playing. And see, for the seven-year-old, she gets the, to learn by being responsible for somebody else. So she actually gets something from that. She has to take care of her. She helps her eat. She helps her to get dressed. They play together. She teaches her things. That's an educational experience for her. Now, my daughter looks at the older child, the seven-year-old, and says, oh, okay, this is how she interacts with her parents. This is how she does things. This is how she moves. This is how she dances. This is how she talks to other people. And so it's a give-and-take relationship. But if my daughter was just stuck with people who were exactly the same age, you know, they're not going to have that type of relationship and neither one of them are really going to know what to do and look at any other situation in the entire world. Like I personally can't think of one where you are dealing with people who are only exactly your <laughs> age, exactly your age. It's like, it doesn't happen in business. Um, maybe it happens in sports. I don't know. Maybe if you were doing just high school level sports or something like that, but any type of other sports, it might be like 30 plus or, or under fifties or something like this. Yeah. 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 There's some great research on this actually on age segregation as one of the, one of the biggest problems with the school setting. So, um, I know John Holt, uh, John Taylor Gatto, Peter Gray. I know all of them have done some really interesting research on this, but what you find is a couple of things. One, the phenomena of bullying, that's non-existent in mixed age groups. And so they, and then you study these schools that have kids from uh, any age, like the Sudbury Valley School, for example, from like age four or five to 18, anybody can come any age. 
And what you find is that the older kids will kind of defend the younger kids from the middle-aged or in-between kids, right? So if you're a bunch of seven-year-olds, the, the strongest, you know, fastest developing seven-year-old who's, you know, going to bully the others, well, if there's a 10 or 11-year-old around, they're not going to let them do that, right? And there's this phenomenon where they kind of, like you said, they partner up and they find, you know, you learn from them. Kids learn best from people who are just a little bit further ahead of their skill level rather than like miles ahead. So, my kids, they're much better at teaching each other how to play a video game or use the iPad than I am at teaching them because I'm so far removed from their experience. And it's like, oh, I learned this when I was your age just a couple of years ago. Here, let me show you. Um, and so there's just all these really interesting phenomena. And age segregation is a really, really damaging thing. It's, it, I remember growing up homeschooled, um, we would be, you know, like at the grocery store or whatever. And, and it was really rare back at the time and borderline illegal. But um, people would be like, oh, oh, you homeschool your kids and you give us all these, you know, dirty looks and stuff. And they would say, you know, right in front of us while we're standing there, or even to me, they'd say, oh, you're homeschooled. And I would say, yeah, I'm homeschooled. I'd be like an adult, you know, and I'm 10. They'd say, well, aren't you worried that you won't get uh, socialized and you won't know how to socialize with people? Yeah. Socialization is to homeschooling what the roads is to libertarianism. Yeah, exactly. My roads. But what about the roads? Right. I would think here I am, 10 years old, carrying out an intelligent conversation with you, an adult. Meanwhile, your 10-year-old kid is like terrified to talk to anyone that's not their age. They can't talk to adults. Oh, I've always noticed that homeschoolers are very comfortable talking with adults, talking with younger children. Whereas like kids that have been heavily schooled, it's like you only hang out with kids your age or else you're like not cool or you're weird or you're awkward. And it's just that's such a weird thing to think about what this idea, if socialization means knowing how to win the approval of the 30 other random eight-year-olds in my classroom. Um, I don't think that's a very <laughs> healthy thing. <laughs> no kidding. So, okay, I do want to get into the homeschooling, unschooling, uh, world schooling type of thing in a minute. But first, let's continue our conversation on education. So we've kind of talked about public school, high school, and college. But I mean, I want to hear about Praxis and what kind of your solution or your ideas were. Because you mentioned that you had like an epiphany moment when you were, I don't know, walking down the beach. <laughs> but but what, what was that? What was that romantic idea that turned into a business? And how did it turn out? Like what, yeah. what's happening? So um, the the seed of the idea started way back 10 years prior to that, to that sort of epiphany moment. When, when I was in college, as I mentioned, just kind of feeling like I wasn't the customer. And I had that realization that, because I kept trying to figure out why am I paying for this? And everyone just kept saying, you have to, or you won't be able to get a job. And then I can think, well, why? Why does this help you get a job, supposedly? And I, I hadn't read anything about the signaling theory of education at the time. Now there's some great books by uh, Brian Kaplan is a great economist in this area and other things that I've since discovered. But I was trying to figure it out because everybody just seemed to thoughtlessly do it. And everyone just believed that would help you get hired. And then I remember I got my first job and they never asked me about, I had my degree listed on my resume. They never once asked me about it. It didn't come into play. I just, I had interned for two weeks and then somebody quit and, uh, and I said, Hey, I want to apply for this role. And they said, well, you've been a good intern. And they looked at my resume and, and interviewed me and hired me. And I thought, huh, that didn't, that, that degree didn't do very much heavy lifting for me. And I kind of realized like it's a signal and it's a signal that you put on your resume, all things being equal a person with a degree on their resume versus not a degree is probably going to get more, um, you know, people are going to assume 
that there's a higher level of proof that they're like, they have some minimum level of acceptability. And so once I realized it's a signal, I just thought there's got to be a way to build a better signal than that. You don't need four years and and 50 grand, right? There's got to be something else. And so I kind of had some ideas. I didn't really know what to do because I was 19 at the time. And I, you know, didn't really know like how to start a company, but I had ideas of like, there's got to be a different, like I had an idea for a different type of college. I kind of put it on the back burner, went about my career for the next 10 years. In that 10 years, I worked primarily with young people in high school and college, um, helping them kind of get their career started at different nonprofits. And then I moved to working with uh, doing fundraising for a nonprofit. So I'm flying around the country, meeting with self-made millionaires, occasionally billionaires, uh, raising money for this kind of libertarian organization. And I would always ask them, because they're all entrepreneurs, I would always ask them, what's the biggest constraint to growth for your company? And every single one of them would say, people, I can't Mm. find enough. Human capital, yeah. Yes. And all the college students I've been working with, and this was shortly after the 2008, you know, crisis, they were like, well, I have a degree and I have debt, but I can't get a job. Nobody's hiring. So I'm going to go back to get a master's just because it's the only way I can defer paying my student loans (laughs) is to go. And they were like on the job market and unhirable. And all these companies, meanwhile, were saying, I'm always looking for good talent. I don't even care if it's a down economy or what, like if I find good people, I'll hire them. And so I had this epiphany. I thought, what's the quickest way to get someone from sort of student to professional, from pre-career to career? And I thought there's really just a handful. And I started interviewing all these business owners and asking them, there's really just a handful of traits and sort of basic skills that you need to come in and not be, uh, and not be a net drain. And if you can get that base level, like how to use email, how to, how to schedule things on Google Calendar, how to not be an idiot, how to write a basic, you know, <laughs> a basic note or whatever, so using some software tools, a handful of skills, understanding a little bit about the company, and then get in and have a six-month apprenticeship where you, the expectation is that you're learning on the job and you're trying to, by the end of the six months, prove yourself enough to get a full-time offer. And so it's not an internship where it's just like, hey, I'm doing this for a summer to add it to my resume. And you just kind of like stuck in a corner to make coffee. Now, some internships are, are really awesome, but some of them are that way. It was like a deliberate, both parties knew, the company and the, the job seeker, this is a six-month trial run. And I thought if we can put together a basic boot camp to prepare you and then place you with companies who agree to bring you on for the six months, and then we can offer support and coaching during that six months to help you make the most of it. I have a hard time imagining after the end of that year that you will be less employable than uh, four years in college will make you. I thought there's got, there's no way six months on the job experience, plus just some basic training and training of things that businesses actually say are valuable, right? Professors don't go out to the world and ask businesses, Hey, what would you like people to know? Okay, great. I'll build my curriculum around that, right? They just make up whatever they want to. Yeah. I think it's hilarious when they talk about what's actually on the, the business degree. Um, like I look at something like SEO and I'm like, that's not taught in university. Like, are you, are you serious? Like you're, you're not teaching search engine optimization. Like how do you, how do you expect businesses to get clients? You're not teaching Facebook ads or Google ads or any of these types of things. Like where, where are people going to find their clients? You just made me think of like, what's, what's relevant in the market versus what people think is important in school. I, there was this parent that came to me one time. And she said, or maybe it was a post on Quora. Now I'm trying to remember if it was a personal conversation. But anyway, 
this mother was like, Hey, I'm really, I'm really worried about my son. Uh, he doesn't want to go to college. He's interested in like digital marketing stuff. Um, instead of school, he spends all of his time on his YouTube channel. He's got like 70,000 subscribers. And, uh, and, and I was like, Whoa, hold up right there. <laughs> Anybody that came to me and said, Hey, I want to be a digital marketing intern or a digital marketing, uh, you know, associate. Here's my YouTube channel. I built it over the last year to 70,000 viewers. I'd be like, I'm listening. Let's talk. Listen, Isaac, you get those people, you send them over to me. Okay. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Apprenticeship Con- with them. Contrast that to like, Hey, I have a BA in marketing. You know, it's like, who cares? What does that mean? So just the, this different, this failing to realize that the skills that are relevant are so different. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that was the idea. And I just started practice in 2013 and kind of just bootstrapped it, tried to convince a couple of people to give it a shot. And, uh, it's grown tremendously and been very successful since. Well, and then you, I remember we were talking on the phone the other day and you were mentioned the success rate of people going through your program versus people going through traditional education. Do you mind sharing some of the numbers with us? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's pretty awesome. We're, we're really proud of it. Um, I'd have to check. This might be slightly out of date, but it's going to be within within one percentage. Ninety six percent of Praxis grads uh, get a full time offer right out of the program. So it's it's been incredibly successful. I think I, I can't. I don't know for sure, but with universities, it's it's like under fifty percent. I'm pretty sure uh, right now it changes, but. Um, yeah. And post-COVID is like 60%. I was reading the statistics a couple of weeks ago. Post-COVID is 60%. 60 Sorry, 60% have no prospect of getting a job. That means that 40% are getting a job, 60% are not getting a job. And you have a 96% success rate. So a 4% non-success rate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, um, that's just immediately out of the program. So if we're talking 30, 60, 90 days out, I, I personally can't think of anybody. There may be some, but I can't think of any customers we've had who were unemployed um, like long-term. Like maybe it took them a month or two in the worst case, but it's, it's almost always immediately. And, and that's, by the way, with college, these numbers are crazy. So the average, the average time it takes to graduate a four-year program is up to five and a half years. Um, the average debt coming out is thirty-seven thousand. Uh, the average, per, the percent of students who actually complete college is around fifty percent. So most go for a couple years and then drop out, which again I'm all about. But that's all money that they've just poured in. So fifty percent graduate in five and a half years with thirty-seven thousand in debt. Less than half of those have a job prospect lined up. Um, when you, I did a back of the envelope one time, and I think it's probably even more extreme now, but of if you add up the cost and the opportunity cost. So the way Praxis works is 12,000 in tuition and then you earn about 15,000 during the apprenticeship portion. So the idea is the net cost for that one year is zero. Um, that you, you, know, you're, you pay tuition, but then you earn on the apprenticeship component. But if you add up, if you choose Praxis over college, it's, it's like $250,000 because by the time you pay the average amount in tuition in college, uh, you come out and you've been out of the workforce. Even if you graduate in four years, you've missed four years of earning opportunity. The average Praxis grad is making uh, fifty thousand on their for, you know their first job out of Praxis. Even if we assume no pay raises, even the most conservative assumptions possible, um, not having paid tuition and having earned fifty thousand a year for four years, <laughs> here you know the the opportunity cost of college compared to Praxis is just it's crazy. It's a it's a quarter million dollar choice. 
Oh, and I think this is brilliant. And I guess this is one of the main reasons that I wanted to have you on, because I see so much of what is happening in the world since COVID and the changes in education. And, you know, I would assume that most of the people who are listening to this podcast have already gone through high school, college, advanced degrees, you know, anything like this. But everybody has, well, not everybody, a lot of people have children or grandchildren. And I just want to have alternatives out there for people so that they understand that there is something else that they can send their family to or someone in their neighborhood or in their community that it doesn't have to be done the same way anymore. Because if you just look at the numbers, if you look at the facts and forget about all the indoctrination and forget all what you were led to believe, but just look at the facts of education today. It just makes no sense for going through traditional college. Now, I, I'm sure we can make a, you know, the, the other one we always get is, you know, if you want to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer, okay, maybe I will uh, consent on some of those types of things. But if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to build a business, if you want to make a lot of money and have freedom and be your own boss, you know, college is just a terrible, terrible place, I would, I would yeah. argue. And I think it's important to point out because a lot of people are, are kind of getting hyped on the, hey, college isn't the only path, which is exciting because when we first started, this was so rare and, and now it's so much more common. But a lot of people have this assumption like, okay, well, you don't have to go to college. You can go learn a trade. You can go learn like small engine repair or to be an HVAC repair person or a welder. Uh, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, that's great. And that's very true. But I want to make clear, Praxis is not for that type of role. Praxis is for professional roles in companies like white collar, like marketing, sales, customer success, operations roles, design, product management, these kind of roles. And we're, and we're talking about the people in Praxis are getting jobs that say on the job posting, degree required, often two to three years of experience required. And they're getting them at age 19 with neither of those things because we're helping them get what they yeah. need. Instead of walking out of school at 28 with an advanced degree, $100,000 worth of debt and their head up their ass. Like, yep. <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so then let's dig into crash a little bit because this is kind of the next step, I suppose. So do people who go through crash um, have already been through uh, Praxis or are these separate? Like I, when you would talk, talk, talk to me and try to explain it, you're like, this is one piece of the puzzle. Maybe you can dig into that a little bit for me. Yeah. So Crash is a completely separate company, um, brand new company, but the, the insight that led to it came out of running the Praxis program. And so we saw it helping all these young people win these jobs. We realized what was, what was helping them win the jobs was not a resume. Because if they send a resume and they're like, hey, here's my resume. I have no real work experience to speak of. I have no degree. Uh, you know, I'm like 18, hire me, right? That's not going to do very much. So what we were having them do was put together these pitches. They would do some projects. Like if they wanted a marketing job, they would go spin up a landing page and create a little email opt-in with like a three email drip sequence through MailChimp. And then they would make a little video walkthrough of what they built. And then they would send it to a company with a short video. Hey, Mikkel, I love the expat money show. It's absolutely awesome. I want to be your next marketing intern. Here's an example landing page I created for you with a lead capture tool of this little, you know, booklet I put together based on some of your blog posts. And here's an email sequence. Let me know if we can do an interview. And they send something like that. And it's like unbelievable. People don't care about their education anymore. They don't ask. They, they're winning interviews left and right. And so I had the realization because practice is a very intensive program. This is a year long thing. It's a high commitment 
um, I had this realization that, you know, we, we can build something that can reach a massive scale with a much lighter touch. We can create a platform that helps millions of people to utilize this concept of pitching on the job market. Instead of applying and just clicking apply and attaching a resume or sending the same copy and paste resume, dear sir or madam, I have five years of experience. I would like to work at your company to create a tailored pitch for each company, to research them, to put together a series of projects, proof of the technology you know how to use. Instead of just telling people, I have communication skills, show them something with a tangible you know, proof of a, of a project or something you've created, a short video pitch. And so Crash spun out as a separate company, um, which I'm now full-time on. I'm still on the board of Praxis, but Crash is my, is my full-time focus now. Um, and it's essentially a, a platform for job seekers. So if you're on the job hunt and you recognize that just spraying out millions of resumes or hundreds of resumes anyway uh, is not very effective, jump on Crash and we kind of guide you through with some resources in the process of here's how you identify companies and build a pitch for them. And you have a dashboard where you can manage um, all of these tailored video pitches and you can you know, assign yourself follow-ups and everything and really treat your job hunt like a sales process, like a sales and marketing process. And we've had tremendous success with job seekers um, using the platform. Well, and there's so much to be said for that because especially in that phase, if you think of yourself more as like a freelancer, like, like for me, I try to work almost exclusively with freelancers because then even though if I'm hiring them, they're not really my employee, I'm their client. So it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the reward system. People want to keep that business. And so they do extra and they work really hard and they really try to personalize and make things special. Like, I think that it's it's so advantageous for new businesses today to work with, say, 10 freelancers or 10 different organizations that have an entrepreneurial mindset opposed to just hiring 10 staff that you need to give all the um, medical to and dental. And this is, you know, this is what you have to give them. They have to like compete for you. And I think that what you're saying with the job market is that same type of thing. If you go into it and you're looking at it as, you know, as an audition and you're you're trying to provide value right out of the gate and show the people opposed to just, you know, shoot and spray and just hope for the best, send out a thousand uh, cookie cutter uh, resumes and just cross your fingers to hope. I mean, these are two different ways to look at things, but I think that mentality shift is so, so, so important. And you nailed it when you said mentality shift, that that's exactly the way I see crashes we're trying to create a shift in mindset sneakily through a product. So it's like, hey, get on and use this product. And what we find is job seekers, they've been on the job hunt for a couple months and they feel very disempowered. They've been clicking apply, they've been sending resumes and they don't hear anything back. And they're just kind of like, they feel like their life is not in their control. Well, I followed all the rules. I did everything I was told. I formatted my resume now I'm like waiting for permission. I'm waiting for somebody to come to me and say, okay, now we will interview. And it's like all of the agency rests with other people and you just feel like you're passive and you're just hoping for the best. They come on to crash and we're like, all right, pick five companies that you're really interested in. Here's some places to research. What kind of stuff do you like? What are you passionate about? Find some companies that really excite you. Do some research, dive in. Okay, now what are some projects you could create that demonstrate skills you have for them? Think of yourself as me incorporated. Think of yourself as your own company or like a freelancer, as you said. 
and then essentially pitch with just bite-sized, hey, here's a little value I created. I would love to do a little more. And using things like projects or even a freelance or contract gig as a way to demonstrate what you can do and get in the door and then make people be like, oh, I want to keep working with you. I want to hire you more. And it's like this very empowering approach where you feel like you're out there and you're hunting. You're not sitting waiting for your ship to come in. You're out there hunting actively and like going and creating opportunity for yourself. And it's just a really cool thing to see people kind of take that ownership step and have uh, tremendous results. I mean, people get, um, you know, our, our average, the average time to interview on the job hunt, well, this is pre-COVID, was like, you know, 90 days to get your first interview, 90 days and 250 applications. On Crash, it's something like uh, 18 days and 10 pitches um, to get that first interview. So um, definitely has a, you know, a good success rate as well. But to me, that's what excites me is that, is that mindset. Like, again, I'm all about expanding the scope of human freedom and realizing like, I'm the one who's in the driver's seat in my life. That's such a big moment. Well, absolutely. And like you said earlier, it's something like that is really going to build confidence. I can imagine doing 10 projects, you know, learning about the company, learning new skills as I'm doing the project, having something tangible at the end that I can actually see and show and works. And then the response, because I can't imagine that someone would send out something like that and just be ignored, which yeah. is normally what happens when you send out a CV, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah I, I think I, that I, even if they don't have the position available, I'm sure they're still going to get a nice note back saying, wow, that's really amazing. You know, thank you so much. And, you know, and that would be the worst that would happen. Right. It's incredible. I, I, I like to tell people it's kind of like, if you think of it more like dating, because remember, like on the other side of every opportunity is a real person. They're, these are real people making hiring decisions. So you wouldn't go up to somebody and be like, here's a list of 10 reasons I'm highly dateable. Please call me, right? That's not a very appealing <laughs> pitch to get a date. Instead, you make it about them. Hey, I'm really interested in you. You're fascinating to me. I want to learn more about you. Can we get coffee, right? And people are like, oh, you actually care about me. On the job hunt, it's amazing. I'll post jobs to AngelList sometimes and I'll get like a couple hundred um, people that apply every one of them, they don't say a word. It's like, they don't even know if which company they're applying to. They're like, I am an experienced professional, blah, 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 blah. Please hire me. And I'm like, do you even know what my company is? But versus those who say, Hey, Isaac, I heard you on the expat money show. Your mission really inspired me. I took a look at your website and I saw this one thing that stood out. So I went ahead and I made this, you know, Excel spreadsheet for you with a list of 50 places that I think would be a great fit for you to talk about crash. Here you go. I'd love to jump on the phone and learn if you're hiring. Now, I feel like I at least owe that person a response, if, if not a phone call, even if we're not hiring. So that's absolutely, um, you know, the mindset that I think is, is so valuable. Brilliant. I love it. Isaac, this conversation has been amazing. I think that uh, we're kindred spirits. We got so many things in common, so many things that I would have wanted to dig into. I had questions about homeschooling, questions about unschooling. You know, we have a lot of similarities and opinions on that, but I think we're going to have to bring you back at another time for that one. Happy um, to. If, if my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they have kids or grandkids or someone else who needs to be entering the workforce, if they're looking at these types of alternatives for education, for their family, for themselves, uh, where can we send them? Probably the simplest is just go to isaacmorehouse.com because there I have, there's links to crash if you're actively job hunting. There's links to Praxis if you think you need a little training and, and you or your kids. Um, and these are, by the way, uh, both crash and Praxis can be done from anywhere. Um, so you can be international, you can be an expat. 
Um, you can find books that I've written, podcasts, articles about all of these different topics. So uh, isaacmorehouse.com is probably the simplest place. Yeah. So I, one of the main questions I get from people is, is this just for Americans? Is Praxis and Crash just for Americans? No, definitely not. So um, Crash is, because it's a, a tool to help you, you know, manage and win your job hunt, can be used absolutely anywhere um, for you know for any jobs. Now, sometimes we get uh, exclusive opportunities that come to us that are usually in the states, but even to, even these days, those are almost all remote <laughs> anyway. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And then Praxis, I will give the caveat: it is not U.S. only. The boot camp is all done remotely, and then when it comes to placing you with the companies to work. The Praxis network is almost entirely in the U.S. I think we have a couple international partners um, in terms of us placing you, but we have had international um, participants. I know we have one in Brazil. We've had a few in Canada, uh, one in uh, England, Germany. Um, if you would just have to know that like finding that company for that apprenticeship is going to take more work on your part, or you'll have to be able to do it remotely. Um, so, But both of them are not at all exclusive to the U.S. Well, and I think that there is going to be so many massive changes post-COVID that people really need to start looking at alternatives because I was reading some something in uh, online a couple of weeks ago and it was like Harvard University is going to open up for online education. It is still $50,000 a year for education for online training and video courses. And I was like, that is absolutely hilarious. Isn't you know, that, that wild? That's got to be the nail in the, in the coffin, I swear, because people have to understand like finally, 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 that a lot of this stuff is just a giant scam. And I mean, they make the rules and they set people up for failure. And it's your responsibility to go out there and look for alternatives because they are out there as we've discussed today. And I think that your program is just amazing and super inspirational. So thank you so much for your time, Isaac. And we'll talk soon, okay? Sounds great, Mikhail. Keep up the great work. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. I just want to mention to you that you need to check out all the work we're doing on social media. So don't worry about Instagram, don't worry about LinkedIn, don't worry about Pinterest and those types of things. Where you're going to find me is on Twitter. Every single day I'm on Twitter. We're sharing a lot of the thoughts, a lot of the tips, a lot of the breaking news is coming out on Twitter. And then add to that our expat money forum. We are doing so much amazing things in the forums. There's special content that's not found anywhere else. There's a lot of networking. There's just so much happening on this forum that I really hope you get a chance to participate. And you can access that at expatmoneyforum.com. So find me on Twitter at Thora Mikkel or join the forum at Expat Money Forum. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand. 
coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern. Time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.